Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who had some pretty big skates to fill, following in the footsteps of his famous father, Cal, and older brother, Dave, a star with the Toronto Marlboros, who also played in the NHL. He responded to that challenge by eclipsing most of his older brother's scoring marks. He was selected in the first round, 11th overall in the 1976 NHL Amateur Draft by the Kansas City Scouts, who later became the Colorado Rockies. And if you're watching on Sportscaster, you get to see my... Uh, Rockies jersey. In his rookie Rockies season, he averaged almost a point per game, scoring 30 goals and 59 points in 60 games, finishing second in team scoring to Will Paymont. He scored 30 or more goals in five of his 10 seasons in his NHL career, finished his NHL career with over 200 goals and over 200 assists. He joins us tonight as he's also spent 10 years side-by-side as assistant coach with the newest Islanders head coach, Barry Trotz. It is a pleasure to welcome Paul Gardner to WLIE Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show, and uh, thanks for the wonderful introduction. You know, before we talk about Barry Trotz, let's talk a little bit about you. We mentioned in the open that you come from a hockey family. Your dad, Cal, played three years of junior hockey in Winnipeg during the early 40s, then entered the military for the duration of World War II. Fresh out of the service in 45, he joined the New York Rovers of the EHL. There, he joined forces with wingers Rene Trudell and Church Russell to form the Atomic Line. Together, they dominated the league, and your dad had 73 points in 40 games. He would go on not only to play in the NHL, but win the Stanley Cup with the Leafs. His last season in the NHL was the year you were born. When did you become aware of how good a hockey player your dad was, and when did you think that you were going to you know, follow in his and your brother's footsteps? Well, I guess I became aware of it as a, I don't know, a seven, eight-year-old. Everywhere I would go, people would would talk about my dad. They'd be in Toronto, they want his autograph, and you start to wonder why and, and put it all together. But uh, many, many people in Toronto, and, and then when dad would do charity work with the NHL old-timers, the, they would pull me aside and tell me what a great, great player my dad was. And uh, a lot of guys would tell me about not only how a great player and you know could score goals and and make plays, but how tough he was too. And so, I think it was uh, just his friends and uh, older people that sort of put the notion in into my head. That's for sure. And uh, uh, when we would go to Toronto Maple Leaf games, uh, he would dad would take us down, and we'd have our shirt and tie on, and everybody would want to talk to him. So it it sort of uh, came at a young age that I realized uh, how, how great my father was. You know, so then let's fast forward 16 years. You, uh, that's the age you are when your older brother Dave makes his NHL debut for the Montreal Canadiens. What did you learn about what it took to make the NHL from watching your brother make that climb into the NHL? Well, I learned the hard work and how, you know, how many hours you had to put into it. And it wasn't, uh, you know, you, wouldn't, you weren't able just to go from playing street hockey and scoring that Stanley Cup winning goal to you know, jump on the ice and the next thing you know, you're going to be in the NHL. You had to, you had to grind at it. You had to want it. I think the biggest thing is the want. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, players, young, young guys don't, uh, you know, have the want or the drive to get there. They, they think it would be great, but you got to push yourself. And so I was able just to watch, uh, watch my brother. And uh, when I was playing at a younger age, dad didn't say very much, but he'd just say a few things here or there. And, uh, 
Uh, I just tried to put it all together. But I think the biggest motivation for me as a youngster was the was the fans because my brother was a great goal scorer and a great player with the Marlies and a first-round pick. And when I would play some places, they'd, they'd tell me, you're never going to be as good as your dad. You're never going to be as good as your brother. And uh, about, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, I said, yes, I am. And I uh, really bared down and uh, put my mind to hockey, and uh, everything turned out very well. It turned out extremely well. You followed your family's path to the NHL as after two solid seasons in the juniors with the Oshawa Generals, you're selected in the first round, 11th overall, like we mentioned, in the 76 NHL amateur draft by the Kansas City Scouts. That right. draft was held at the NHL office in Montreal, Quebec on June 1st, 1976. Was a lot different than what we saw this past weekend, Friday, Friday and Saturday, covered by the network, a, you know, four-hour show surrounding it. What do you remember about the draft, and how did you find out that you were taken by the scouts? Who told you, and, and what was that day like for you? Um, well, where I was, I was uh, I was caddying for a golf tournament in Las Vegas for my brother. Uh, David was David was quite a golfer, and uh, he played in a couple of charity events. And there was a big one in Las Vegas, and I had gone out to California to to visit him. And we were driving home and stopping at that. So I got a phone call from mom and dad to let me know that I had been been drafted. But they weren't sure about the uh, about the team because Kansas City was down to like about. Uh, four or five uh, staff members and they had talked about the franchise being moved. So it was a, it was quite an interesting day sort of thing, but we were excited and we had uh, heard through, through Al Eagleson uh, who represented me at the time uh, that if call if Kansas city folded, that I was going to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh had made some kind of deal with the league and helping Kansas city with their drafts. And that if it fell through that I was going to go and be part of the Pittsburgh Penguins talking with former NHL star Paul Gardner. We mentioned your 30-goal rookie season. What do you remember most about your first NHL game? Uh, the the call-up. It was a Friday night. I was playing in Providence, and uh, I got the call. Mike Kitchen and I got the phone call that we were going up to play in the Montreal Forum uh, in Saturday. And uh, and so I called Mom and Dad and uh just you know, told them the good news that we were going, and uh, Dad just said, uh, "Well, go home, get something to eat, have a beer, relax, and uh, be ready to go." So that's what I did. But, uh, certainly, the game, scoring my first NHL goal in the game, uh, tipping in a, a Sean Shanahan pass over over Kenny Dryden, it'll be something that I hopefully never forget. But it was uh, it was quite a memory, and we ended up tying the the mighty Montreal Canadiens at the end of the game, three to three. So it was a it was a huge memory, and then going to Boston the next night and score two goals. Uh, it was uh, I got things off to a quick start, and it, it made me feel awful good. That's for sure. Not a bad goalie to get your first one off of a Hall of Famer to boot on top of <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, you and your brother, I believe, were in the league for two seasons together. How many games did you guys play against each other, and what was that like? That was tremendous. Uh, David was with Cleveland at the at the time, and we played a couple against uh, each other. One of the first. Uh, memories of it is I had the puck at uh, center ice. I got a pass and it bounced off my stick and it went right to brother David who who nicely walked in and scored. Uh, so it was uh, a little chatter on the bench that uh, I got an assist on my brother's goal. So I remember that in Cleveland that night, but uh, there was another game later in the year um, that I, uh, I scored uh, three goals in the third period, or two goals in the third period and an assist to win. And uh, so that was one that I was able to sort of get back at David. But it was, 
it was about Dave. My brother and I were really close, and it was uh, it was pretty special to play against him in the NHL. And I think mom and dad, if I recall, got to two of the games in Cleveland to uh, to see us uh, on the ice. And I know dad would have watched and cheered, and mom would have paced the hallway uh, not being able to watch. Those two classic NHL jerseys, or the one yeah. I'm wearing today, and the Cleveland Barons jersey is an awesome one. Um, after three solid years with the Rockies, you're traded to a team where your dad, Cal, had won his Stanley Cups with the Maple Leafs. What did playing for the same team as your dad mean to you, and was it something that was special for him as well? I hope it was. It was certainly special for me to, to, to get the news that I was uh, going to Toronto, because earlier in the day, I got a a message that I had been traded to Chicago. So uh, it, then when the official news came from the general manager, Ray Miron, that I had gone to Toronto, it was it was very special. And uh, of all things, my, my mother and father very rarely took vacations, and they were on vacation, so they weren't there. The, they wanted to fly home from vacation, and we decided to stay on vacation, and, and uh, they'll get to see me play in Toronto. But the the first night to have a Leaf jersey on and uh, the time I spent there to, to be a Maple Leaf was, uh, was something I'll never forget. It was, it was what you wanted to do growing up in Toronto. You wanted to be a Maple Leaf, and, and to get to do that, uh, again, lots of things I'll, I try not ever to forget, but that certainly was real special to play in Maple Leaf Gardens. You know, here in the States, you know, I guess playing for either the Maple Leafs or the Canadians is equivalent to playing for the New York Yankees, and you're under a microscope. What was that like for you to play in that market, especially you know, that your father had played there as well? Was it, was it as pressure-filled as, as we hear it is? Yes. Yes, yeah, it, it was. It was quite interesting. I played for uh, Jim Gregory was the general manager, and he made the trade for me, and uh, one of the first times I was, uh, I don't know, it was maybe 10 days in after a game, I came in the rink the, the next day, and he said, uh, how was your Chinese food last night? And uh, I said, oh, it was good. You know, it's the same place my dad used to go. And he said, yeah, I know, they call. And he said, I'd just like to let you know that everywhere you go, every fan calls. So if you're out having a beer or you're out uh, with the family, I know about it. And uh, so it was interesting to know that. But uh, I guess I was a bit used to it in the fact that when we would go to restaurants, people would come over and ask for my father's autograph when I was younger. So when it when it happened to me or when we were out as a family, it, it wasn't as a shock. But it, I, I happened to live real close to Daryl Sittler, and um, obviously he was the star player and a, and a Hall of Famer. And uh, when we would stop at red lights driving in and stuff, people would jump out and try and get his autograph right at the red light there. And you started to realize how popular we were in Toronto. And it was, uh, again, I, I loved every minute of it. I really enjoyed playing in Toronto, but I know some players have a difficult time with it. And put that in perspective, that was before cell phones and Twitter. You can only imagine what it is today. Uh, yeah, exactly. Again, if you just tuned in, we're talking to former NHL star Paul Gardner. In November 1980, you're dealt to the Pittsburgh Penguins, which is interesting because obviously you had mentioned earlier that in the draft that they kind of oversaw that draft as well. So they must have had eyes on you for quite a while. You spent the, most, the four most productive years of your NHL career there. What was it about the Penguin system and playing under the legendary coach Ed Johnston that complimented your game so? Um, well, first of all, to, to deal with the, the drafting, Baz Bastine was the general manager, and he did the drafting uh, that we talked about earlier that made it possible that I would maybe come to Pittsburgh, and then he's the one that made the, the trade for me. So Baz Bastine uh, uh, was the one that got me there. But playing for Eddie was great. Um, 
he uh, he I think understood the way I like to play to be around the net and bang in rebounds or tip pucks and cause havoc around the net. So he formed uh, the power play where I could spend a lot of time there. And uh, Eddie was uh, Eddie was great. He was an easy person to talk to. Uh, things were upsetting, he'd just call you in and talk. And uh, I really really enjoyed playing for Eddie, and then I was uh, blessed to play with some good players. Randy Carlisle at the time was our captain, and the Lady Bing, or a, uh, uh, won the, uh, the defenseman trophy, and uh, uh, Rick Keel was my line mate majority of the time there. Uh, Ricky scored 57 the one year, and he said he would have scored 77, but I tipped 20 of them. So it was uh, <laughs> it was a good time there. And, again, Eddie, Eddie likes the way I played, going to the net, and he gave me lots of ice time. Now, after the Pens, you signed as a free agent with the Washington Capitals in the summer of 84, where you played 12 games with the Caps. You make one final brief two-game stop with the Sabres in 85-86. You follow that up with two solid years in the AHL with Binghamton and Rochester winning the league MVP in back-to-back years. Then throw in, for a good measure, a a year of roller hockey. Uh, (laughs) And then you enter the coaching ranks as a head coach for the Newmarket Saints. How did that opportunity come about, and at what point in your career did you think coaching was in the cards for you? Well, I'm not quite sure. The, the two years in the American League, I was with Larry Plow in Binghamton, and he didn't have an assistant. I was the, for the older, one of the older players down there, and him and I would spend a lot of time. And a, a few days, uh, he ended up being sick, and I had to run practice. And so I sort of got a, a like for it then. But the, the biggest thing came sort of as a surprise the following year, I was playing in Rochester, and we had a third-string goalie, Bob McNamara, and Bob uh, didn't get much time in practice and was never playing. And I would stay out with him about 15 minutes every day and just shoot pucks and work with him because he wanted to get better. We played, became pretty good friends and everything, and as the year got on, I think he only played two or three games. But I went home, and I had a bad back, and I was ready to retire. And uh, all of a sudden, I got a phone call from Jerry McNamara's father, and he said, I'm... I'm going to hire a young coach in Newmarket. Would you be interested? And it just caught me by surprise, and I said, certainly I'd be interested. And So it was a Thursday. On Friday, I drove up, and I interviewed Saturday, and they gave me the job. So it happened extremely quickly, but I, it all came from working with the young players when I was in the minors. I think uh, general managers appreciated the time I took, and that came from the older guys when I was a youngster working with me, and I just tried to carry that over. And, and again, Bob McNamara and Jerry McNamara got me started in my coaching ranks. It's interesting, too. You take a look at the roster of that team, and um, you had two future NHL coaches in Jack Capuano and Bruce Boudreau. You had yeah. a, a future AHL and current European coach, uh, Doug Shedden, as well as some pretty yeah. interesting personalities such as Ty Domi. What was your takeaway from that new market's position, the Saints, and, and what did you take from that? Well, I think just learning, learning coaching at the time. Being around the Toronto, there was, you know, there was some pressure to, to win and everything. Uh, uh, but I had some good players, and we worked together. I had to realize that I wasn't a player anymore. That was the biggest thing at, at uh, 31 years old, uh, standing behind the bench and and in practice wanting to do the things instead of you know teaching them or putting the system together. So uh, that was the one thing Gord Stelic at the time uh, worked with me there a little bit on making sure I stayed away from the players and I wasn't jumping in the drills and things like that when we were running practice and so again, it was just a, it was a learning experience, but I did have some again good players. The people you had mentioned, uh, certainly for sure, uh, Dougie Shedden is one that I keep in, in touch with a great deal. And uh, 
Uh, I enjoyed Tidomi. I know uh, a lot of people, uh, he rubs people the wrong way sometimes, but I certainly enjoyed coaching him. And uh, at the time, I was very upset that he got traded because he scored seven goals in his last 11 games with me, and then they traded him that summer. Yeah, we love Ty here in New York for sure. So that brings us to the 92-93 Baltimore Skipjacks. The head coach of the Skipjacks is Barry Trotz. You become his assistant. His assistant. How did that position become available to you? Had you known Barry before? How did that come about? Well, I hadn't known uh, Well, Barry and I worked the year before in the scouting for Washington Capitals. But, again, working with the young guys is how it all got started. David Poyle called me after I got let go by Newmarket and said, I need a pro scout. You're the guy. You helped me when I was had the team in Binghamton, and you worked with the young guys, and I think you evaluate guys very well. So, would you pro scout for me? Because that's when it was just coming into the league. And I said, certainly, that'd be a great job and, and stuff. So I did that for two years. And then uh, Barry got the uh, Barry was an amateur scout at the time for the Capitals. So we got to know each other a little bit at meetings and everything. And the Baltimore season started out, and uh, we ended up putting eight rookies in there. David Poyle called me in the office and said, uh, you've been scouting, and I'd like you to go help Barry for the first uh, two months or so. He said, then we'll get you back to scouting when it gets important for trade time and everything. But we've got eight rookies and I want you to really help with the rookies. And, and Barry, you're a little older and you can give Barry uh, some of the experience of pro hockey because he, you know, as a player, he never got to, to that level. Um, so I said, certainly, you know, as a, as a good employee, it's uh, yeah, I'll help the organization any way I can. But uh, we hit it off as, as coaches, and uh, everything went along. And after two months, uh, Mr. Poyle called me and said, just keep coaching, and, and everything's good. And um, so, uh, again, I was there just to continue to help Barry get started on his career, and uh, he certainly has, has had a great one. But I feel you know, somewhat honored and, uh, and happy for him that how far he's gone from, from those days in Baltimore, that's for sure. So you had, this is A.J. AJ Carter. Paul, uh, so you started a relationship. David Poyles went to hire you, put you together at Barry Trotz, and later he would hire both of you again in Nashville. How close was the relationship with David Poyle, and how much did that play into you know, your continuing relationships with him and with, with uh, Barry Trotz? Well, I think our relationship was, was really close. Uh, I think David, uh, David liked both of us. Um, Jack Button, who was David's assistant, assistant uh, um, uh, I think really liked myself because I was a very uh, honest person. I would say what I felt, I wouldn't hold back. And Jack was one of those guys. He didn't like wishy-washy people. He liked someone to, if you like the player, say it. If you don't like a player, say it type of thing. And so so David and uh, Jack, uh, I think, took a liking to myself. But uh, the three of us, Barry, David, and I, uh, you know, I think just got a good relationship. We were developing players, and we were having some, some success in Portland and uh I think he just liked the way we communicated and, and developed the players. And, uh, again, Barry and I fit, fit together pretty well. And uh, so when it came time um, for the chance to go to Nashville, David uh, met us and uh, we had an interview sort of together and uh, we both got off with the job at the same time. What was it like scouting players to help pick players for the first expansion draft for Nashville? And how did, that, how did what you learned before affect that and how did that do things moving forward? Well, it certainly was the busiest year of my life because you're a scout, uh, scouting games, uh, but you didn't have a home rank to go to. We, we both lived in Nashville, and uh, 
so we had to be on the road constantly, and I think we were on the road 25 of 30 days a month seeing American League games and stuff. And then when you got home, it was to sit down with, with David and some more of our staff and go through our lists and and projections and, and all that. And when those meetings were over, it was uh, say hello to your wife and children and get back on the road. <laughs> we were, uh, we've traveled more miles, I think, than any scouts uh, that year. And then again, all, the only reason being is because we didn't have a home rink to, to go to. So, uh, uh, but again, it was an exciting year, and uh, it was it was wonderful traveling around. I know that you were going to, for myself, know that I was going to coach in the NHL the following season, and uh, you certainly worked hard because you wanted to have a, a strong team. But uh, David Poyle had a plan, and uh, we would all uh, you know sit down and talk about it and, and argue about it at times. But I I think it worked extremely well, and uh, certainly got the franchise uh, going, uh, and it's, it's going gangbusters right now there in Nashville. Again, we're speaking to former NHL star Paul Gardner. Uh, you'd be alongside Barry for the next 10 seasons with the Skipjacks, the Pirates, and five seasons at the NHL level with the Predators. How did Garrett Barry grow and adapt along the way, you know, from AHL to NHL, from that expansion team as they grew, and in watching him coach this, you know, capital team to the Cup, what have you noticed, you know, the evolution of Barry Trotz? Oh, just... Uh... Just his maturity. I mean, we were both young when we started. He was, uh, I think, about five years younger than me, and you just you just learned. But he was willing to learn. He was willing to listen. Uh, again, uh, when we started, it was David Poyle and Jack Button giving us lots of direction. But um, you know, we would learn of the things that happened. Our experiences when winning a cup in uh, Portland the first year, winning the Calder Cup, and then the next year probably should have won it again, but but we let it slip through. So. Barry's a, a real student of the game, but I think he studied uh, he studied coaching too and what other coaches did, and uh, uh, very knowledgeable. Take a lot of. We lose him. Loves him oh. more and 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 studies film more than than he does. But I I think seeing him and uh, uh, you know just mature and watching his interviews after uh, games uh, and things, you just you see how he's just got older and wiser and uh, and smarter. I believe he, he never developed uh, your taste for ties. I see though. <laughs> no, I couldn't even talk him into the odd night putting one on, even around Halloween or anything. I couldn't uh, I couldn't talk him into wearing a tie. He was uh, pretty pretty stuck to his to the way he liked to dress and. I was a little bit different and pretty stuck to the way I like to dress. So, I, I was telling yeah. Mark for a minute, I, I forgot to bring it tonight. I actually have a Boris and Natasha tie. And <laughs> okay. I, was, I was going to wear it tonight. But do you have a Boris and Natasha tie? <laughs> I started in Portland. My wife, uh, right before the playoffs, bought me a Mickey Mouse tie. She's a huge Disney fan. And uh, um, so it all started there. And I put this tie on, on the playoff game. married that summer and so she bought me a Mickey Mouse bow tie and I wore that for the wedding and then the next year I had about I think she bought three or four with Disney characters on it and mostly Mickey Mouse and it, it's just grown it's 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 embarrassingly grown to over 225 ties I, I think now so but it's uh it, it became great it was it was really uh fun like the linesmen in the nhl would skate out to start the game and they'd skate by the bench and want to see what tie i had on and everything so like the one person that really really didn't care for it was david poyle actually he he didn't think that the times i was serious enough uh 
you know, with wearing a, a goofy on your tie or something <laughs> like that. But it it certainly became known everywhere. Even when my travels over in Europe, everybody wants to wants to know what time I'm wearing that night, sort of thing. So. All right, we have a few minutes before we go to break, so I have a couple more questions for you. This Islander team is a mix of youth and veterans, a team that needed a culture change desperately. How will Barry go about creating a a winning culture to this franchise, which, you know, it starts at the top with Lou Lamarillo, obviously, and now you got Barry Trotz. What do you think he will bring to the Islanders as far as a culture change? Well, some, I think some stability for one. He's got a five-year deal, if I if I read it right, and everything. And uh, you've got two very very knowledgeable hockey people who don't just make brash decisions, type of thing. Lou and uh, and Barry will study everything. Uh, you know, he'll he'll look at every little thing he can, find every way to to make things work. He's a huge student of the game. He loves studying film. I don't know that I've seen anybody that watches more tape of games. I don't know if the last few years if he's changed but uh, you know he would watch the same game two and three times just trying to learn everything and so he'll he'll bring uh, he'll bring the atmosphere that how to win and then he's just got to get it you know that the players buy into it but um, I think the Islander fans will be really excited to have him there he's he's not a jump up and down guy or make a lot of noise guy on the bench type of thing but he he's watching every little detail what's going on in between periods He's a great guy. As I always used to call him, he's a great counterpuncher. He'll see what the other team's doing, and he'll find a way to beat it, and he'll, he'll quickly instill that system or that way in, into his hockey team. And as you've seen over the years, uh, he's been able to do that and been successful. Finally, you've played under a lot of you know, quality head coaches and assistants. John Muckler, Johnny Wilson, Pat Kelly, Aldo Gwidlin, uh, Roger Nielsen, Floyd Smith, Dick Duff, Jeannie Ubriaco, Larry Plo, Punch Imlach, Eddie Johnson, Lou Agnati, uh, Brian Murray, Jim Schoenfield, John Van Boxmere. You also have been a head coach as well as an assistant. Of all the guys you played under or coach with, which is the guy that Barry reminds you of most? Um... Probably in a lot of ways, Roger Nielsen of uh, staying calm, knowing what's uh, knowing what's going on with everything. Um, again, studying the film of what's happening, being extremely well prepared. Uh, nobody's going to prepare more than than Barry. Uh, you know, nowadays with all the the video and and everything, uh, he'll be extremely well prepared for every game and be able to give a, a solution to his team on how to win. Again, you don't ever get it to work every night, but he'll he'll know how to win. It's just been getting the players to to buy into it. But I found Roger Nielsen was that uh, in his uh, in when I was able to play for him. Roger was able to teach us, you know, what system would work and how you can win and. Uh, we just had to execute it as players, but I, I think you'll see a lot of re- resemblance to Roger. But Barry's uh, Barry's also learned, I think, over the years to communicate uh, with players so much more. And uh, I know I've done some traveling in the summers to get to know players, and I think that's a, an extremely uh, strong thing that that he's learned and and does now. And he he gets to know his players, and then he puts them in the right places at the right time. Paul, thank you so much for your time tonight and giving us an insight into what makes Barry Trotz tick, as well as talking about your great career in the NHL. We really appreciate it. Super. Well, thank you very much for having me on the show. Hopefully I can grab the find something over here and get to talk to you a little bit more often. That'd Would love great. to. Love it. Sure. All great. right. You got it. Paul Gardner, five-time 30-goal scorer in the NHL, longtime assistant coach with Barry Trotz as well.